You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hey there, uh, this is Jeff Edgers. I'm the national arts reporter at the Washington Post. And uh, today on the program, we have uh, a multi-talented fella, uh, Penn Gillette. You know him from uh, his time as half. Oh, gosh, what the heck are on? What's on your head there? I'm wearing headphones. Is that OK? They look like giant red Oreos. Well, they kind of are, but they're just, you yeah. know, they're just a straight Apple product. Nothing mysterious. I just have them in pink. I hope you were paid for that uh, comment. Hey, uh, what I meant to say is welcome <laughs> to Pendulette. I'm, I'm holding this book. Actually, I glued it to my hand by mistake. So I will not <laughs> remove it at any time, even during dinner. Um, so uh, we're here to talk to you about this novel, which is your second, I believe. Um, Second and, novel, uh, yeah, 11th book. So, um, and I want to let people know that you, uh, if, if you want to get some questions, I have a huge production staff just kind of to the left of this typewriter. And uh, if you send your questions and tweet them to at post live, uh, we will try to get them to, the, to uh, Penn. Um, so your, your previous novel was Sock, which the narrator was a sock monkey named Dickie. Mm -hmm. um, this one, despite being uh, lacking in reality seems to be more based in reality. So I, I want you to tell me what makes you decide to write uh, this book. And just to let people know, this book is about generally, uh, um, the narrative wise, it's about a guy named Bobby who is about to deal with this huge debt that his uh, ne'er-do-well father has landed on him, a gambling debt, and he has to try to clear it somehow. And he's almost 21. He's riding around on a scooter in Las Vegas. And that's part, that's the, that's the setup, but it's about a lot more. So tell me about why you wrote this book. It started a really long time ago. Um, we were doing a show in England, a television show in the 90s. And um, there was a, a woman that we were working with um, in a very high position we're working with. Uh, I'm, I'm being, uh, I'm not giving a lot of information on her for reasons that'll become clear. And um, we were getting along okay. And uh, uh, one day she called me into her office and said, um, can I talk to you? And I went in and, uh, you know, I was hopeful, but it was just she wanted to talk to me. And um, uh, she asked me if I read this book, uh, The Dice Man. And I said, no. And she said it was popular in England. And I had a couple of days off. Maybe I should read it. And she said it with a, with a, it was ominous. So I read the book and the book is uh, uh, silly. I don't like satire very much at all. I don't like parody very much at all. And it was a satire and a parody um, for the, of the Est movement. It was a 70s book of, you know, Est and whatever his name is, Warner Earhart and so on. And um, it was about uh, a therapy that uh, people who couldn't make decisions threw dice to make those decisions. Mm. And it was comedy. And I, I, I liked it okay. So I finished it and she called me into her office again and said, what did you think? And I said, well, you know, uh, it's a silly book and I, I don't really care about parody and satire and but boy you know the idea that we always do the primary choice and parts of us that are in our heart are secondary tertiary and so on uh 
and those never get expressed, wow, that was kind of seductive. And then the whole conversation went off the rails. And she told me that she was very close to her brother and she had gone to her brother's apartment. This was just months before and found that her brother had um, hanged himself, committed suicide. She was the one to find him. And she said after that, and I, I don't like, you know, lay people giving medical uh, medical terminology, but she said she became catatonic and could not function at all, couldn't get off the couch for days. And um, she had read this comedy book, but just thought, well, I'm going to make a flow chart of the things I want to do in a bell curve. Things I want to do most, I'm going to put it six, seven, and eight. Things I want to do least, I'm going to put it two and 12. And I'm going to roll these dice. And whatever it does, I will act on it instant. Instantly. Uh, I will not hesitate. And she said she threw the dice, and all of a sudden, she got her life back. And these decisions that were impossible for her to make were made instantly by the dice. And I need to right here address the fact that she wasn't rolling for anything she wasn't sincerely wanting to do. And she was weighing it for practicality. It was all her, but the dice were telling her, this is what you do. And I said to her, um, do you, are you, I, I still do that now and again? And she opened up her briefcase because this was back long enough ago that people had briefcases. And there were two ornate golden, you know, I don't know if they were gold, but beautiful dice. And she said, yeah. And then I said to her, you know, when we asked you to do this show, the producers said, we probably couldn't get you because you were above us uh, and our money was not that great. And then you took it, everybody celebrated. And she said, yeah, I rolled an eight. I said, so you, <laughs> you took this job and she said, yeah. And I said, in your job with us, do you, do you ever make decisions based on the dice? And she said, only when I'm not sure exactly what I want to do. I said, so, so some of our show, our show is now random? And she said, yes, I'm afraid so. And we ended up finishing the show. I was very fond of her. And we lost touch. And... For years and years and years, I would um, tell friends about this and try to talk to them about the most important parts of this idea. To me, you know, it morphed tremendously from the book and very much from her life. But to me, the important thing is that you've got something you want to do 51% and 49% there's something else. And you always go with the 51%. And there's a tyranny of the winner because these are parts of us that don't get expressed. So I was, you know, carrying on in this over dinner with my friends. And over the years, you know, it's been 30 more, um, two friends of mine have taken time to live dice life. And I told them, boy, you really shouldn't do that. You really shouldn't do that. I think it's too dangerous. It's a fiction idea. I don't think you should do it. But if you're going to do it, tell me everything. <laughs> uh, My God, this is, un this is an amazing uh, 
Wow. I, I, you know, that's pretty fascinating. Uh, I think that woman should write a memoir after your book has its full sales run. And um, this explains Hollywood to, in, to me. Uh, it <laughs> yeah. explains everything about entertainment. Um, it's fascinating because what you're talking about is I think the narrator says it. It's the idea of eliminating uh, um, uh, doubt, not choice, but doubt. So, you know, and, and just to explain to people who might not understand when you're talking about six, seven, eight, I mean, eight means she kind of wanted to do that show because what we're talking about is what numbers do you roll when you roll those, those dice. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. you know, the it's a possibility is going to be in a, uh, is it an 11 is it, or, or a two or two what and 12 Two. Yeah. just draw a bell curve. Oh. Two the and worst 12. Gambler. Yeah. Uh, two and 12 have a like 2.7% chance, each of them. And then it goes up from there. And uh, seven is you know below half, but still pretty good. And of course, you don't have to have 11 choices. Uh, you can do six, seven, and eight is I will do this. You know, um, my friends, uh, both of them women who, who did this uh, said, I said, well, what, how did this change your life? And they said, well, you have a lot more kinky sex. <laughs> Because this is the this is the Washington Post live for God's sakes you can't do that I'm sorry we're not allowed sorry. to use the word kinky uh, uh, well, you know you can't believe how much I cleaned it up from what I was really going to say I, I hear you I I know I understand <laughs> uh, I I mean this book is not a it's not a children's book unless it's you know no. a, a smart kid um, so I. I when I think about how fascinated you were with this concept for 30 years, I'm obviously thinking uh, you have a lot of tools in the toolbox for how you express yourself. And was there any bit of you that thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do this for six months or a year, and I'm going to write a nonfiction book about what I experience or no? Uh, no. And I'll, and I'll, the, the reason is, is very strong. I, I think I like this idea too much. and. Um, I uh, I don't do anything in moderation. I mean, when it was time for me to lose weight, I lost 120 pounds in three months. Um, I never had a drink of alcohol, never any drug. I don't gamble. And the reason is that I tend to uh, have the inability to do things half-assed. And uh, the people that I saw, and you can find them on web who do this, uh, end up having to show some restraint. And uh, I don't think I'd be able to do that. I think it'd be all encompassing. Also, I went to a great deal of trouble. It's important to me that the um, the lead character, Bobby, is moral, very moral, and that what he does fits entirely within my morality. And uh, the situation that I'm in uh, with a wife and two children and a business partner and 50 people that work for me, uh, there are things that I sincerely want to do that I would give the dice the choice and then act on that I believe would hurt other people. I've gone to a great deal of trouble to make sure the character in the book is, well, that's one of the reasons he's 21. It's one of the reasons he's not married, so that um, he can't do um, immoral things to people he's made promises to. And although the premise says you can only put things on that list that you sincerely want and will and can do, I'm afraid I would get sloppy and put something on there that I shouldn't do. And then 
the book is also a lot about religion. Uh, I'm an atheist and haven't made any bones about that, but I'm fascinated by uh, the parts of religion that we can co-op to do interesting things. And the one or two times I tried playing with the dice, um, once you tell yourself, I'm going to do whatever this dice roll says, it's fascinating how that becomes something you believe in. And it is so astonishing how quickly that happens. Uh, the two women that I know that did it for a while said, when those dice hit, it's the only time in their lives that they didn't have doubt. They knew precisely what they were going to do. And um, that is so seductive and so powerful. Uh, it really is a superpower. I mean, um, many business people will tell you that making a decision quickly and sticking to it is more important than the decision you make. Uh, any poker player will tell you being able to act at random is one way you can't be fought against. And doing things quickly and without doubt, all those things together make this an incredibly powerful thing. Of course, what I'm talking about in the book is I'm not advocating people leave, live, live by the dice. I just want um, uh, the understanding of, of, of how we make decisions, how we make choices. And of course, um, Bobby lives his whole life at random, and it's very clear as the book goes on and said explicitly that we're all doing that. We're just not yeah, rolling well, it's, dice. And, and, and it's, it, it's a fiction, so that's the ultimate thing you can do to, <laughs> to explain it. And I, I mean, I will say from what you're telling me, I, if I were your advisor, and I'm not, I would have wanted you to do that book because you would have ruined your life. But <laughs> fabulous read, my God. Um, I always, every time I talk to you, I want to ask this question. Um, who are the residents? Can you answer that? Can you tell us <laughs> identities? Uh, is, it time, is this the moment when we do it? Is this the right, right well, form, right? Uh, you're doing that. You're doing that as a gag. But um, my dear friend, my dear, dear friend, Hardy Fox, who was called H and worked at Ralph Records, uh, he died a couple years ago, uh, maybe a year ago. And Hardy said uh, on his deathbed that he was one of the residents. And the other, other residents were not thrilled with him doing that. But what you do on your deathbed, you can't be reprimanded for. And uh, that's what Hardy did. So I can tell you that one of the residents uh, is and was um, Hardy Fox. And now he is. Uh, and that's, by the way, that's his real name. Uh, he's Southern boy. Hardy Fox, but um, everybody called him H. Yeah, I hear and you. You, you can um, read it. You can read at his website about it. I know you expected that to be a joke and to go right yeah. on, but I actually chose to tell you the truth. As Bob Dylan no, like, said, I, we, don't we ask like me nothing the, about nothing. Yeah, we know we like we like the truth. Um, tell me, you, you referenced this process of how or how you do things, and I understand that you are someone who doesn't do things halfway. Um, and so uh, I'm curious about this. Writing a book is hard, as you know, from doing it so many times. Do you have this process? Is, it doesn't sound like it's sort of a spontaneous thing. It is almost like, I feel like you've described your process as almost like a militaristic approach to how you do things. So when you write a novel, do you get up 
uh, in the morning and sit there for three straight hours or you work for five days in a row? Or how, how do you do this? Well, the other 10 books that I wrote, uh, I had to write in absolute stolen moments because I was doing uh, television and, and movies and the live show all the time. Um, and so uh, my friends, and I have several good friends that are, that are writers, uh, Neil Gaiman and uh, Elizabeth McCracken and, and, uh, and uh, uh, Stephen Fry and uh, Nicholson Baker. And I would talk to them about how they write. And I was always a little bit, a little bit envious because I would get 20 minutes between um, at the end of a rehearsal and before being picked up for, uh, for supper. And I would pull out my laptop and I would write for that whole amount of time. So all the stuff that other authors, there's a, there's a wonderful book called, I don't know, routines or something that deals with this exact thing. Uh, what people do to get in the mood. I, I never had that luxury, uh, but it did give me, and this is one trick that I learned for everything that works very well for me. I, I'm not the one who discovered it, others have mentioned it, but I set a timer every time I'm writing or working on something. And when the timer goes off, my hands come off the keyboard. And what I find so fascinating about that is if you finish at a point, if you come to a cadence, end of a paragraph, end of a chapter, if it just feels like you've landed, then you're done working. If you pull your hands up and you're in the middle of a sentence, you get work for free because your subconscious and your mind keep finishing it and you can't stop it. You get yourself a nervousness that's built into you. And the next time you stop, you have more than you, next time you start, you have more than you would have had. So when I was writing most of this, first it was pitched as a TV show and it was bought and then show business happened. But when the lockdown came, I said, wow, I can actually write a book the way other people write a book. But I didn't do that. I would set a timer for 27 minutes. I would write four minutes. The f when the timer started, I would do the first click on the keyboard. And when the timer went off, my hands would come, come away. And then I would you play my bass or work on magic tricks or talk to Teller uh, for another 27 minutes, half an hour, whatever. And then boom, back into it. And uh, I really love that, you know, um, uh, you would think, that, or I would think, I suppose, that the difference between performing in front of 2,000 people who are right there in the room and writing alone, you know, in your underwear, um, would be a, I would think it would be a more different experience than it actually is. But what I care about is moving things from my heart, things that I'm thinking about and sharing them with other people. And it turns out that to me, them being in the room with me or not is less of an important thing than any sane person would think. And I can't justify that, but I've always wanted to be a writer. And if you asked either Teller or I what we do, uh, if you got us when we weren't guarded and weren't answering like we're supposed to, 
our first answer, each of us would be writer, I think. What I care yeah, about well, most is putting the magic tricks together. Yeah, I mean, you are a writer. Um, you know, last, uh, um, uh, we don't have three hours, unfortunately, which I would love to talk to you for endless periods of time and maybe someday. But last time we spoke, uh, 2020, heart of the lockdown, and um, we, we, we talked a little bit about politics. And I, mm -hmm. I remember this quote, you said, I, I used to be looking at rocks and now I'm looking at mountains. And I mean, we know you're famously a, a libertarian and uh, that has been tested in different ways over the last few years. First, I, I know you liked Joe Biden, you voted for him. Has, has, has President Biden met your expectations? Uh, well, um, I'm afraid this is a rather flippant answer, but it's also the truth. My expectations were he wouldn't be Trump and he <laughs> fulfilled those. Um, uh, I, uh, you know, I almost feel like it's a, it's a monkey paw deal, you know, Penn, the, the good news is you're going to know a president fairly well. The bad news is it's going to be Trump. <laughs> um, uh, it's, uh, I don't know how we get out of this. And, um, I, I think that maybe somebody um other than biden could have pulled the country more together and stopped um you know uh uh q on and stopped some of the proud boys and that kind of stuff and pulled them into the fold but when i picture obama doing it i'm afraid that much of what we're experiencing in this country is is racism and I, I don't even like to say that sentence because I'm one of the idiots who believe that there was a lot, a lot, a lot of racism, but we've gone over some sort of hump and that it did bend toward equality and the future was getting better. And I'm afraid that Trump in the aftermath has showed me that I was uh, naive and ignorant. And I think that maybe someone like Obama I don't mean because of his race, I don't mean anything else, would make it worse. So I think Biden is maybe doing as well as he can, but we're in a, and I, you know, I'm someone who whenever anybody brought up anything, I would say, Kent State, let's go back to the 70s. Let's go back to the Democratic Convention in 68. Let's go Watergate. Let's go Kent State. Uh, military people are shooting students on campuses. You cannot tell me what we've experienced is worse than this. And when people would talk about George W. Bush being stupid and making bad decisions, I would go, Nixon went insane in office. We have not shut up. Everybody likes to pretend the time they're in is the worst. It's not the worst. Shut up. We're doing okay. And Trump took that from me, because now I think yeah, maybe you, we are you, we are doing okay. Uh, and you, we talked a little bit, um, and, and I've seen you sort of figure this out. But you know, libertarianism has a, its own connotations and meaning, and, and and it almost sounded like in this post-Trump moment or mid-Trump moment, I don't know, whatever it is, you have started to shift or started to shift how you viewed being a libertarian and what that means to you and to to our country, because they, you know, in many ways, the Trump people 
sort of co-opted that somewhat, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, the cliche when anybody fades away from a movement is I didn't change, you know, the, the, the organization left me. That's said by everybody who leaves anything. And um, I don't want to be into that cliche, but I, I feel there's some truth to it. Um, my idea of libertarianism was responsibility for others. Um, that was the most important part. I wanted to trust people to take care of each other and not use force. Libertarianism, from my point of view, was almost a pathological optimism and a love for people. It was a complete and utter lack of cynicism. I am not a cynical person. I'm crazily optimistic. And I saw people uh, using that same word, libertarian, to mean I don't care about other people. I don't have responsibility. People who cannot see the difference between I don't want to wear a seatbelt, which I can make an argument for, you should have that right. And I'm going to drive drunk, which I don't think anybody can make an argument for that you have that right. And when masks came along, I mean, there was actually a moment, I mean, I actually a moment that happened, which is during the um, lockdown, I get an email from someone in the libertarian movement that said, we're doing anti-mask rallies in Vegas. And of course, we assume you'll be leading them. <laughs> and I got to tell you, my reaction was um, was so strong, and it was not of anger. It was crying. <laughs> it's just crying. Uh, uh, the fact that that was the way I was seen. The fact that I was seen as someone. And remember, these rallies were not people should wear masks voluntarily. Which, by the way. You can make that argument to me and I'll listen to it. That maybe it shouldn't be forced, but everybody should do it. I mean, wouldn't that be beautiful? That's my libertarian point of view. Uh, but when you're saying don't wear masks, <laughs> not we don't want to be forced to wear a mask, but simply don't wear masks. And then I had, because I, I, I guess I need to fess up to this so anything I say makes sense. I'm always wrong. So that's important to know when I'm speaking, <laughs> um, because I said, boy, as soon as the COVID vaccine comes out, the whole anti-vax movement goes away. I mean, Jenny McCarthy just shuts up. Everybody's going to want this and we'll just get it. And the anti-vax movement will be history. I mean, I believe that this is the level of stupid you're dealing with. I believe that. And then what happened, I mean, they developed that vaccine in three days. It is the biggest breakthrough in the history of science. It is man on the moon times 10. It's the greatest thing human beings have ever done. And Donald Trump helped it happen. And then? People turned against it. I mean, for someone like me who lives his life as an optimist, the world is making it kind of goddamn hard right now.
Yeah, I hear you. And I, I, I think we all, as, as appreciators of you, I kind of still wish you had that bull SHI. I can't say the word, uh, but that show uh, that I watched with my, my preteen son uh, on DVD. Um, hey, look, we, we've only got like 45 seconds, so don't screw this up by having a real thought. But, um, you know, obviously it's been, almost, it's been almost 50 years since, I think it was 47 years ago at the Minnesota Renaissance Fair. I was three. I needed the money. I, I remember that was your first performance with Penn and Teller, right? Uh, and um, that's fascinating. I want to ask you quickly, favorite trick on Fool Us? Uh, can, can you tell me? Uh, favorite trick I saw Toby perform is a guy named Wes Isley did a trick with a coin flip uh, with a whole audience. And I love the fact that it used everyone in the audience. The prop wasn't just a half dollar. And it was all about uh, the social activity that happened around it. And Wes allows us to do that trick. We do it on our show now. Not all the time, but once in a while. That is Was that cool. short enough? That was short and it was good. Maybe it was too short. We need like 12 seconds more. Hey, um, I can't wait to talk with you again. Stop whether it's the on war. camera, off camera. It's, it's <laughs> always enjoyable. Um, I hope folks will go out and get this thing so I can detach it from my hand. Uh, and... I'll tell you what, um, we have a lot of good programming coming up on Washington Post Live. You have tour dates with, uh, uh, you're going out in, is it this fall, a little later? You're playing? We'll, be going, yeah. we'll be going out in December. We'll be going out in December. Yeah, December. So uh, read the book, go see the show, uh, listen to the residents. And uh, I'm Jeff Edgers <laughs> from Washington Post Live. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, Go to WashingtonPostLive.com.